0: Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, the days of asking the last one leaving Seattle to turn out the lights are long gone. So when we think about parks and open spaces, what's ahead for one of the fastest growing cities in the US? Why not drop a lid over I-5 downtown and make our current open spaces more welcoming for all? Think Occidental Park or listen seriously to a nine-year-old's ideas about the Roosevelt Reservoir. It's an exciting time to catch up on and get involved in envisioning the great public spaces that will help sustain our growing region. KUOW, the Seattle Public Library, and Seattle's Office of Planning and Community Development hosted this conversation with national and local experts to help the community at large better understand the issues and opportunities we face. KUOW's Posey Gruner moderated the discussion. This How Can Seattle Grow More Public Space event took place at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library on July 24th. Sonia Harris recorded the discussion.
1: My name is Valerie Wonder, and I'm the Community Engagement Manager here at the Seattle Public Library and I'm very glad to welcome you here tonight. The library is deeply committed to creating opportunities for dialogue around issues that are important to community and for creating opportunities for you to hear from and share with thought leaders and government agencies and others that create the policies and implement the policies that affect your lives. Because of this, we're very pleased to be partnering with the Office of Planning and Community Development and KUOW on this program tonight the second of the Urban Innovation Speaker Series. Um, and now, it is my pleasure to introduce Sam Assefa, the Director of the Office of Planning and Community Development. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Val- Valerie. And thank you all for coming uh, in this beautiful evening to talk about public spaces indoor. But you're doing it in this fantastic library, beautiful library, so uh, I'm pretty sure it means a lot to you and we really appreciate that uh, you're here. Uh, OPCD launched uh, this speaker series last March. I think some of you participated um, as a community forum to explore best practices on issues and forces that are shaping Seattle today and uh, in the future. So through this process, we bring experts from around the country to share new perspectives and ideas on urban planning, housing, transportation, climate change, uh, public spaces, among others. Our first event on March uh, focused on affordable housing, tonight's event will focus on outdoor public spaces, and future events will focus on integrated transportation solutions Uh, trends in environmental resiliency and sustainability and other uh, pertinent uh, topics that would inform our own policies here in Seattle. So this evening we'll explore the challenges of protecting, expanding and enhancing public outdoor space in a densifying city. And it's no uh, no secret that Seattle is uh, experiencing that challenge significantly today. So as Seattle is growing faster than any major city in the US. We added about 27,000 new residents just in 2016 alone. And uh, current trends seem to, con- uh, from every projection, will continue over the next decade. Anywhere from 120 to 150,000 new residents are possible uh, in Seattle. We know people are choosing to move to Seattle because of its strong economy and job growth but it's also because of its vibrant culture, stunning natural beauty, plenty of sun, as you've experienced over the last few weeks, and yes, it's great outdoor spaces. One of the pressing questions for Seattle is how we can continue to grow without jeopardizing what makes this city a livable and vibrant city. Now that we are more than 700,000 uh, people, and we expect to add, as I said, about 120 to 150,000 people in the next decade, we, tonight we ask the question, how can Seattle grow uh, more open space? As cities grow, we need to invest in public space. Acquiring new public open space in urban areas is becoming cost prohibitive. Under, underdeveloped, uh, undeveloped land is limited, and there are many competing priorities the land that we have. As a growing city we're not unique with this challenge. We have much to learn from other cities that are innovating in interesting ways to address this challenge, which is why tonight's discussion promises to be uh, informative. This discussion is not going to stay here. Uh, we are uh, going to have this information and uh, what we learned from here feed a related ongoing uh, work that the city is currently engaged in. We're just launching a new effort uh, in Seattle called Outside Citywide. This effort will be a fresh and integrated look at how we can leverage existing assets and new innovative ideas to ensure high quality and diverse outdoor public spaces for all Seattleites from urban plazas to natural spaces from the neighborhood scale to the citywide and regional scale um, are offered in the city as we grow. We'll be working with our colleagues across city government, with other agencies like uh, King County and the Port of Seattle, with Seattle Public Schools, with our universities, with community partners, and many others. Our goal through this process is to ensure that current and future generations can continue to enjoy the beauty of this place and what made Seattle a great city with access to all uh, the benefits that being outdoors can provide. So we look forward to hearing from our panelists this evening, but uh, to inform our work, especially on outside, uh, um, outside citywide. But it's also very important uh, to hear from you and Seattleites um, about new ideas, what is working and what's not working uh, for the future of public spaces in Seattle. So we would like to get you engaged in that process. Uh, just to give you an example, I recently got a wonderful letter from a nine-year-old Adeline, who lives near uh, Roosevelt uh, Reservoir. She had a lot of ideas about how we should use uh, the Roosevelt Reservoir. Her letter started as, uh, Dear city planner, I have a suggestion to make. What if? And then she listed all these wonderful ideas, and I can tell from the writing that she actually wrote that. So I sent her a note back saying, I'd love to meet with you and explore your ideas. So we made an appointment at the Roosevelt Reservoir, and when I got there, she waited for me with her dad, and she had a, uh, an aerial photo of the Roosevelt Reservoir with all these drawings wonderfully illustrated, a creek, a pond, uh, different kinds of trees, and as we were walking around, she's explaining each type of the tree and what it would do if we added those amenities to that area for her, which, uh, where she lived a few blocks away, and she actually corrected her dad about the type of trees and the kind kind of um, wildlife that exists in the area. Every time he tried to explain, she would just cut him off, and she say, Dad, no, that's not what that is, and this is, this is what this tree is. And it was really impressive. So, and in fact, on, the, on her letter, I'll, I'll, I'll read it. She said, quote, we might be able to add some sand and gravel and plants, fish and all sorts of things into the reservoir, then all we needed uh, to do was add water. I know it would be expensive, but I personally th- I personally think the results would be worth more than cash. Plus, it could be like a refuge for wildlife in the city. So, if a nine-year-old can be that engaged, I think I hope you have no excuse uh, not to engage. So, please sign up for email updates on Outside Citywide. I think that site is um, on the screen. Um, it's, um, the website is seattle.gov opcd that but if you're on uh, social media, hashtag outside, uh, outside citywide to share your ideas and, inno- um, and innovations that you can come up with in Seattle or other places through that website. So we'll be sending you more information uh, through that site about this um, uh, integrated effort. I want to start now to introduce KUOW's Posey Gruner, who will serve as a a moderator for tonight's discussion. Posey produces content for KUOW's Region of Boom team, which explores how Seattle's growth is affecting the region. As a producer, Posey identifies people with something important to say, whether they're Uh, making the news, analyzing the news, or affected by the news. When talking about growth, that has meant talking to environmentalists about why they're investing in affordable housing, talking to artists about why they're capturing vanishing Seattle, or talking to small town tour guides about ghosts, ghost towns in the mountains. She's produced a series of interviews about Seattle 2035, the Regional Comprehensive Plan, and about Seattle's creation of a metropolitan parks district. In short, Posey talks to people about growth for a living and then tries to make sense of it for people like me, the nine-year-old, and 90 year olds as well. <laughs> so please help me welcome Posey to the podium.
3: Hello, everyone. Thanks, Sam. Um, so think about this. What do you value in society? Um, what kind of space would reflect that? We're at a critical time, so let's not waste a minute. Uva, uh, So Uva Brandis is a professor of practice at Georgetown University. Uh, he served as a senior vice president at the Urban Land Institute, where he directed research and global programs on climate change and sustainable urban development. And from 2000 to 2008, he was the Managing Director of the Anacostia Waterfront Initiative in DC, which he's going to tell us all a little bit about. Welcome, Uva. Thank
4: you. Thank you so much.
3: Um, so you've said that uh, big ideas by urban planners and policymakers have to be translated into real projects. Um, and that needs to be done through the public and private investment process. Um, so I understand you can give us some examples of how that works.
5: Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much, Posey. Thank you, Valerie and Sam, for, for uh, inviting me here. Uh, it's, it's, wonderful. it's wonderful to be here in this building uh, and to have this conversation. It's a, it's a real treat for me. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so what I mean by that is, <clears throat> especially with parks, we have lots of aspirations associated with our public realm. Uh, of course, we have lots of aspirations associated with our cities. Uh, But when it comes to realizing those goals, uh, we have to get pragmatic and practical. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about public open space is that there are a series of steps, uh, sometimes big steps, sometimes little steps, but they are incremental steps that are finite, tangible, usually involve money. usually, thank you, usually involve money. And that money can come from any number of different um, places. Usually it comes from the private sector through capital improvement plans. But more and more and more, we're seeing a whole host of partnerships emerge around the public realm. And so I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in a second. So I'm just uh, I've I've brought a couple of slides with me here from Washington, and these are just slides of parks that have been built over the last ten years or so. Uh, so this is a park called Canal Park. Uh, it's a site of an old canal. It used to be uh, one of the most important parking lots for public school uh, buses, and uh, through a, a, a public-private partnership, including through private. Uh, Uh, Donations this park was built next slide, please and this is the same park in in the summer next slide Um, We've done a lot of work as many cities have on our waterfronts This is an example of a long-term public-private partnership where the city partnered with a private developer to organize a new public realm where there was none uh, this is a former Brownfield site, it's actually a Superfund site, uh, and now is a regional park, not just for this neighborhood, but, and not just for the city, uh, but really for the region. This is a, uh, a, a new place for people to come together. This is Yards Park. Um, part of Yards Park was responding to a problem that we have in Washington, and that is the challenge of heterogeneity. We have lots of federal parks controlled by the National Park Service that are expanses of green. Uh, On the other hand, we have lots of city parks that tend to be organized around community centers and schools. And What we didn't have in Washington until very recently is a set of new public realm projects, not always parks, but public realm, that also Invite a new kind of commerce to happen. Some of this, some, uh, I'm thinking now about um, special markets, uh, in this case, a restaurant, a very high end restaurant, uh, accompanied by other uh, price points in, in dining, but located within a park so that you can imagine this public spo- open space being accessible to people who just want to sit and have a glass of wine unimaginable in Washington until just a a couple of years ago. And finally, these are some slides taken from a new neighborhood in the city called Noma, north of Massachusetts Avenue. And this is a good example of how public realm strategies are being driven into the regular, quote unquote, the regular public realm. This is a street that includes a major stormwater retention strategy. As well as a multimodal transportation strategy, and is really the main street for a series of new um, uh, uh, a new population in the city. And this is taken from that same streetscape. <clears throat> you can see the uh, legacy of, of a street is really changed in this case and turned into a place to just hang out. And next slide in a place where many people can come together. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in in conversation.
3: Um, So this is all great, but what about us? (laughs) Um, So what are the lessons that you can see in this place for cities like Seattle or other cities?
5: Well, I think Washington and, and Seattle actually have a lot in common right now, certainly have a lot in common in terms of the public discourse around changing neighborhoods, gentrification, a new group of young people, you know, uh, some people thinking young people invading the city, but certainly a, a, a new class of people coming into the city. And we've used our public realm strategy uh, to try to bring different people together. It's been the overarching goal for all of our um, uh, parks, park projects. And similarly, and this is not unique to, to Washington and Seattle, We have a new agenda with respect to the public realm. Um, Some people call it green infrastructure. Uh, There are other technical issues associated with stormwater management. Uh, These are realities that need to be resolved within the infrastructure of the city. And what we've tried to do in Washington is to start doing that in the public realm through the creation of new public space and new public spaces. And I think that's something that we, we have, have in common. And uh, it's a huge challenge for, for many cities. And I think Seattle and Washington are at the vanguard of those strategies.
3: Um, public-private partnership can be a dirty word for some people. Um, what would you say to them?
5: Well, um, it's a reality. Uh, the private sector builds the city. It's, it's the reality. The public sector has a small sliver of investment that it makes in, in building cities, and so those investments have to be thought of together. They're often thought of uh, sequentially as catalysts. Uh, pub the public realm in so many cities was really, you think of Central Park in New York, right? This was a catalyst to attract private investment to the city. More and more, though, with greater levels of vigilance, uh, greater greater sensitivity to the multiple stakeholders and the interests of multiple stakeholders, mm-hmm. we can weave this process together and accelerate an investment into the public realm. Some of the examples that I've shown you are um, uh, illustrate that, where the public has actually not taken the lead in the investment, has acted more as, as, as a regulator, and the investment has come from the private sector. Uh, but again, um, you know, close working relationships and transparency are key to, to making those kinds of projects happen.
3: Great, um, I see we already have lots of questions, so we'll uh, we'll get to those in the question portion. But that's that's a good sign. Um, and for now, we'll move on and speak with Mommy. Um, so, Mami Hara, uh, some of you may recognize her face or the name. Mami um, Hara is the general manager of Seattle Public Utilities. She's in charge of making sure that great drinking water comes out of your tap. Um, she's in charge of reducing the waste that sends, that's sent to landfills, and she helps to keep stormwater waste out of our rivers and lakes. Um, so what does it take to be good at that job? Uh, if you go by Mommy's experience, it is degrees in design from two Ivy League universities, uh, two and a half decades of experience in planning and design, and a track record of planning and designing civic projects on a really big scale. Um, We're talking about waterfronts and river corridors, open space systems, trail networks, neighborhoods, and cultural institutions. Uh, Mommy was also the consultant to UVA on the Anacostia Water Project that uh, we mentioned before. Uh, Before Seattle, Hara was the Chief of Staff at Philadelphia Water, uh, where she helped implement national models for green stormwater infrastructure that Seattle looks to as a model. She was appointed in 2016 by Mayor Ed Murray, so uh, we're really just getting started here. Welcome, Mommy.
6: Thank you. Um,
3: So, (laughs) help explain this for me. So you're the GM of a public utility. You manage wastewater, among other things. Why are we here talking about open space?
6: Most folks are familiar with the uh, the idea of uh, protecting watersheds for clean drinking water. Um, that's something that's been embedded in the American consciousness for you know many many decades. Uh, but increasingly, stormwater management is an important part of utilities' responsibilities and or, you know and urban communities' responsibilities. Uh, particularly with the exacerbating effects of climate change, you know we'll see that that's even more of an issue. And so really, water management is increasingly about land management. It always has been, but not really posited strongly in people's minds.
3: Um, So we're talking here about open space innovation. That's the point of this whole exercise that we're doing. Um, Open space innovation sounds kind of trendy, Um, like the same people who like natural popsicles would like open space.
6: Um, Is it new? we use the term open space uh, because unfortunately our field hasn't really come up with a lot of great names um, but you know the kinds of terms that are used come and go just like the kinds of typologies of open space that attra- that that capture people's imaginations at any given time you'll find that you know at one point you know people are you know really really passionate about covering highways right or it might become about you know another typology um, but the, 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 but in those in their rearviration of those typologies there's an opportunity to reclaim space for public use so uh, you know I'm all for the cycle of interest in, in different types of open space um, Seattle has really let out on innovation in many areas uh, covering highways for example with freeway park uh, community gardens at a large scale through pea patches um, Oh, the preservation of scenic vistas, like at University of Washington's Rainier Vista and also Volunteer Park, you know, that's a really big contribution to open space planning. Um, You know, the green infrastructure, Seattle and Portland experimented with it well before other cities who adopted green infrastructure at scale uh, uh, even had, it was a glimmer in their eyes, right? So, um, the, but First, for Seattle, there's another kind of uh, uh, generation of innovation that I think that they could look to for cities who have taken Seattle's ideas and implemented those innovations at scale, right, which is an innovation itself, you know, programmatic, uh, and, you know, to, to bring programs up to a big scale requires a lot of different kinds of financing and management and stewardship innovations. So, you know, you look at Philadelphia, who's taken green infrastructure, you know, at a kind of at a much bigger scale or um, uh, communities like Copenhagen, who are looking at flood management through green infrastructure, uh, which I think Seattle was also a leader on, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, you look at the Atlanta Beltline for uh, large scale implementation of of, uh, brownfield conversion, which Seattle led out with on Gasworks Park. You know, so I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of you know how 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 those ideas have really captured people's imaginations. If I could just insert two things, though, there are two areas, though, that I think that Seattle has not really uh, been a leader in. That I think that there is a lot of room for. That I've seen a lot of discourse about, and and that is uh, uh, schoolyard greening. You know, particularly for stormwater and you know other kinds of community. Uh, benefit, and also um, large, iconic, centrally-located parks. Great. Um, so Seattle has more people now than it
3: had when it created some of these parks that you mentioned, um, which means we have less space and more needs. Um, what can we do about that?
6: What can... Oh, well... Uh, in many cities who are facing uh, constrained areas for open space, but increased need, you know, environmentally and socially, are looking at hybrids of, of open space types. You know, really a you know, very multifunctional uh, design that uh, that that brings you know a, a lot of benefit. But it's you know, it takes really tailored approaches, right? For any of the ideas that we talk about today. There, there's always the issue of fit, right? You have to fit to the place and the people and the needs of of, of your time. But um, uh, for example, you know, green infrastructure in schoolyards, right? You know, that's instead of just greening it for recreation, that's a kind of hybrid. Um, you know, the Anacostia Waterfront Initiative, I think, was a a big hybrid. You know, UVA didn't even talk about a lot of the kinds of functions that were included in the planning for those kinds of open spaces.
3: So I think you, um, I think you have some examples for us. Of uh, yep,
6: here we go. Oh, I'm not going to speak to them individually. You can just let them roll okay, as so, I talk. Great. Yeah. Um, you you were uh, asked me to include these so that I could talk about some of our work in Philadelphia exactly. around water, and um, a lot of the work that we did around water is absolutely, I'm sure, not interesting to this audience. But uh, with respect to open space, uh, Philadelphia is an interesting city to look at because. Uh, affordability is a huge issue you know i guess in seattle the median household income is over 90000 uh, a household and in philadelphia it's still around it's still less than 38000 per household um so that's a big big difference in the afford in what people can afford with respect to open space investment and 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 management and capital work and um, but Philadelphia, just like Seattle, has clean water mandates that it needs to address. And so we were able to negotiate uh, with our regulators a novel approach um, that was really predicated on the issue of just people not having the money to pay for extraordinary measures That um, that's predicated on the development of green infrastructure. So theoretically, in spending, instead of spending uh, you know, $10, $12 billion on tunnels over a long period of time. It would be investing $2.5 billion in green infrastructure to change the way that water is managed. And that meant that it, we had to drive a lot of partnerships with different kinds of landowners or land managers, you know, different kinds of, of NGOs, which was great, right? You know, that that turned the utility from a very inward facing utility into one that was you know that really had to address the needs of its community um, and so you know it was a great experience for me and that we got to I got to really look at the nexus of workforce development and economic opportunity and kind of really wealth building strategies for this community through the uh, clean water funds that we were spending
3: it's really helping me get a perspective on the like large scale that I introduced you about. Uh, Thatcher, hi. Hi. Uh, Thatcher Bailey is the executive director of the Seattle Parks Foundation. Uh, The Seattle Parks Foundation envisions a thriving system of public spaces throughout this city. They believe that's possible through connections with community, philanthropic, and public sector partners. Um, And Thatcher points out something simple, which is people love parks. And he also points out that when people talk about how they love parks, they almost always talk about connections to friends, family, and community. So, hi, Thatcher. Hey. Um, So what do you mean by that?
4: Well, I think that... uh, Is this too loud for folks? Okay, you got it. I think, um, weirdly, for something that is so uh, emotionally important for all of us, we tend to dismiss the power of that fact, or tend to put it off to the side um, when we think about the city challenges and opportunities that face us. Um, but we're confronted every day in in our office, working with 60 or 70 different groups of all sizes in all neighborhoods around the city, about this kind of deep connection people have to one another, not only in their experience of their public spaces, but in their creation of these public spaces, and we're convinced that that really is a kind of a a superpower that we have as a city, and that um there's a, a quote that I've overused a million times because a, a woman up in Lake City was trying to reclaim a piece of stop property, a little stream going through it, and no one had been paying any attention, and over a lot of months and with a lot of effort, she finally got volunteers together, and they've done an amazing job, and her line was, you know, we started as a neighborhood, we ended up as a community. And those are tough words because they seem a little hackneyed, but I, I think... Um, as we face problems of displacement and affordability and transportation crises, we have an opportunity to think in bigger terms about the, the idea of a livability that often gets left to the side that actually encompasses all those challenges and uh, addresses issues of, of equity in a, in a way that actually is more like dessert than vegetables. It's about, it's about rewarding. So I think, um, what we mean by, by you know, um, people's emotional connection to parks is that um, parks build great communities and great communities build and sustain parks. And that's something that um, really will drive change in a positive way for the city or does drive change in a positive way.
3: Sounds good. <laughs> um, so how do we, I mean, this, the topic of how do we grow more open space? What do you think?
4: I think there's actually lots of ways. that we're, They're right in front of us and we're, we're not necessarily paying attention to them all the time. We don't think of them at the top of the list. One, um, and I imagine everyone in this room can think about a certain park or public space that you know where very few people go. And it's like, well, hey, let's make these places that people go. Our office is very near to Occidental Park and we were part of a, an effort to invest in um, some, uh, uh, the, the DSA um, programming, for Occidental and Westlake Parks, to make them more welcoming for all people. And um, it started off as a park that people would, or a, a square that people would walk around to avoid, because there were just a few sketchy folks maybe selling drugs, and now it's a vibrant urban gathering place. So, in a way, you're creating a new park by making it a place that people want to go. I mean, the others you guys have talked about, like making streets, places that people want to go, not just go through. Um, That's starting in Seattle, and there's enormous numbers of great ideas on the books to kind of make that happen more effectively and more dramatically. Um, Our public realm is just open for opportunities to create these kind of places. And I think we have the opportunity to create parks out of, out of places that are, you know, basically out of thin air. You know, we're, we're happy to be involved with the LID I-5 folks. There is an opportunity to expand on what's happened with Freeway Park or in Mercer Island or even with the, uh, uh, the, the new LID by Montlake and recognize that that's just real estate that can be parkland, it can be housing, it can address a whole range of social needs and it's right there in front of us. I think um, a key element is designing all these places so they're parts of connected systems. I mean, we're a great city in so far as we're fortunate to be part of the Olmsted legacy. So we've got this kind of baked into our thinking about how do you, you know, great parks connected by great boulevards. We'll just dial that up and and recognize that, Doing one-off um, public space improvements in this neighborhood and that neighborhood can be so much more effective if we think about how we link those, um, those centers together with green, safe places for people to um, travel a point A to point B to point C. And finally, I'm going to keep I'm going to hammer on this all night, um, making sure that we're supporting communities, uh, leaders, and volunteers to make all this happen. That's where the creativity is. That's where the resources are. Anything we can do to drive more resources to those groups, to connect those groups up one with another, with other NGOs, and with the public agencies that are bringing dollars to the table, um, makes this city a more diverse, um, welcoming place for all users of public space in the city.
3: So, can you highlight an example of this thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I have a. a, Oh,
4: look, you can. Look, (laughs) look look there. So, uh, this actually is a map that was that came out of a neighborhood planning process we had nothing to do with it although we're huge advocates for um kind of what this represents and we're involved in some of the projects here and this is how you think really holistically about addressing a whole set of needs that uh, a neighborhood with a a whole set of kind of significant problems is is working together with enormous numbers of um clusters of community groups um, to recreate Rainier Beach. And I think um, what's the, there, there's, a, there's a sweet little opportunity. If you look at Henderson, right in the middle there, which connects up the light rail station and goes all the way east across to the water, there's a little project called now Link to Lake. And um, that is a connection that now um, is barely there because if anybody walks down Henderson, it's not a, an experience that you want to have. It's like... The traffic is awful, there's sketchy corners, there's places you don't feel safe, and you certainly don't feel connected. Um, but um, if you look at the possibilities of how that connects up to green space on the west side and then down to an actual beach, and one of the um, questions is, you know, where is the beach in Rainier Beach? Well, it's right there at a boat ramp. So um, you'll see in a second a, a picture of of how that beach can be re-envisioned. And right next to that is Beersheva Park, and right next to that is uh, Rainier Beach Urban Farm, which is finally opening after any number of years, was a, an abandoned parks uh, department nursery site that the community got together and said, hey, why don't we create a working farm here? And you can go on to that next picture. And I I show pictures of kids working at this farm, not because kids in parks are always the kind of picture you want to show, but because in this particular neighborhood, having gone to a lot of different community meetings, there's a huge focus on how do you make public spaces um, as alternatives for other kinds of activities that are far less desirable for kids to get involved in. And this farm, um, which produces enormous amount of produce and job training and environmental training, is a testament to a community getting together to make that happen. And finally, the last picture, which is that, that beach at the end of the, the Link to Lake corridor, um, what is now a boat ramp with no real sense of being a beach can be multi-purposed into being another access point into Lake Washington, connecting up to this whole set of green spaces, and once again, kind of being a a signal turning point for a community that's working in many different ways to transform itself into something livable and welcoming um, for the diversity of residents who live there.
3: Thank you, Thatcher, thank you, Mommy, thank you, Uva. That is the end of this portion of the evening, and now we will get to your many questions. Um, I also have some questions here in my deck from people on Facebook, people who wrote in. Um, But the first one, actually, Thatcher, I'm going to give to you. which is, what will it take to accelerate the community efforts to reinvest in Freeway Park and expand it by litting I-5 for acres of non-new public space?
4: What will it take? Well, I love that question because I think I was talking to someone earlier about, um, we're we're fortunate to be um, directly involved with the folks um, championing LID I-5, the LID I-5 project. We're an awesome team of people, and we um, obviously are, worked closely with the freeway parks folks as well what it will take is what's already kind of in place these are folks who have done amazing organizing within the Capitol Hill and downtown and First Hill communities who are making the kinds of connections and slowly incrementally building a case for something that at first seemed like an insanely expensive outrageous idea um, but very patiently they've made the case to decision makers and community leaders like wait Here's why, this, here's why this makes sense. Here's um, kind of how it can happen. Here's the next step. And the next step is a very expensive study of like what it would actually take to physically make this transformation. But all along the way with the eye on the prize of when this happens, you're getting real estate um, transformed that um, didn't exist before at a cheaper cost per square foot that you can get it anywhere near that part of town, and you're addressing a whole host of public space needs and possible housing needs and um, other development needs that are also drive an economy that makes a, a, a living project like this happen. I think it's, again, w- what it takes is community leadership, and they've got it. Great, right. um, And also money, right? Well, it takes an enormous... It's, you know, here's the thing about money. It's just money. And in the, I mean, truly, we've got to remember that, that um, there's no such thing as too much of a good park. There's still no such thing as like, oh, we have too many great public spaces. We can't afford anymore. No, the benefits from these things are, are generationally significant. So um, you make the case, the money will be there. Uh, and there's endless numbers of mechanisms and, and political will to make that happen.
3: Thank you. Um, so I feel like that leads into this question, which I'm going to direct towards UVA. But any any of you, if you have um, contributions, you can add to it. So this question is: How do we create new funding sources to support our public spaces? It seems our current approach isn't keeping up with demand. That's
5: great, um, and that, that's a great follow-on to. to uh,
3: Hi, with the microphone. That's
5: a great follow-on to the previous question. So I agree, it's just money, but behind the money is value. And so I think the conversations in cities like Seattle and Washington and many other cities that are fortunate enough to be in the midst of a building boom, um, the conversation needs to get beyond straight public aspirations for open space and to really get into a much more nuanced holistic understanding of how public and private value is created in tandem. And when you get to that place, and when you get to those sometimes very difficult conversations between stakeholders and people that are not used to talking to one another, you get to a place where you realize that there's tremendous value created in the private sector when you create sound, long-term public value. And when you get to that place, the money appears, often magically, as you've just suggested. But you have to be able to think about the integration of the public realm into the larger city and think about and really work through, sometimes difficult, sometimes easy, questions around who benefits and how. And so those are the conversations that get you to an implementation conversation that sometimes can produce extraordinary, very large projects like like the freeway freeway park.
3: So um, our audience member has written a very smart follow-up question to that um, in the past. Uh, So their question is, how can we pivot away from ineffective and inaccessible privately owned public spaces such as the proposed roof garden for the convention center expansion that will be five stories above ground?
5: So um, I'm not familiar with that project, so I'm not gonna comment on that. But I do think that uh, in addition to what I just said, there is vigilance necessary, right? The public needs to own the public space. And so if benefits are created and accrued and not um, properly um, maintained and accounted for, and um, if the stewardship practices are not put into place, then of course that value system can break down and, and, and sometimes bad things can happen. And I think the, the poster child for that is uh, the legacy of publicly accessible private spaces in New York City. Uh, there's a huge program created in New York in the 70s and 80s. Um, it was never properly cared for. Or and designed. so, or designed, and, and, and those spaces were created. They didn't live up to their promise and it was a breakdown in the trust between the public and private.
6: May I go back yeah, to Uwe's go, go comment right about magic? Uh, you know, uh, I, I just want to add that, I, I mean, I agree entirely with the idea of, of value and designing and planning to maximize the value and return for both the public and private sector. But the design of those instruments, to, the, those magical instruments that capture value and uh, and to make clear what the respective contributions are. You know, is an art, and um, and it's an evolving one. Um, there are you know, so there are value capture instruments that we could talk about. You know, at length, um, and I think that's a different conversation. But there are also um, old ways of thinking about uh, funding for open space. Uh, you know, at a regional, or, you know, or even larger scale. Um, You know, where cities like Seattle and others are looked as kind of donors to uh, open space conservation in exurban areas. And that leads to, uh, you know, um, great conservation strategies, but not necessarily sustainable ones, because we're not looking at how to make cities livable. And to promote densification and reduce development pressure, reduce you know congestion, you know um, through making cities more livable, right? And so that's and I think that that's a an important consideration and how we should be looking at the flows of funds, you know, at, at different scales of governance, um, you know, and also looking to. Uh, more novel ways of uh, investing in open space. Um, you know, I'm not advocating that, ever, that the utility can pay for everything, but leveraging utility funds um, through different kinds of investment schemes, you know, that's kind of the magic that we should be looking at.
3: I have a specific question for you um, from this audience member. It says, I am especially interested in a response from Mami Hara. Um, so uh, this... Uh, audience member says I am interested in hearing your positions on existing green spaces, especially surplus lands and or assets that could be transformed or restored into green spaces. I am one of the many residents of Lake Forest Park who have been raising monies um, through local donations and grants to assist the city of Lake Forest Park to purchase five acre woods um, as an urban park to be restored and enhanced for public enjoyment and education, etc. I'm sorry I can't read the rest because I have to hold on to it. So um, what is your position? This audience member is interested in hearing on your position on existing green spaces, especially surplus lands or assets that could be transformed or restored.
6: Uh, Well, you know the idea of surplus land is one that you know has lots of different perspectives, right? You know whether something is in excess or needed for risk management later on in the future or whether uh, you need to cons- dis- uh, we, have resp- we have utilities have financial responsibilities that go beyond the you know, their abilities just to convey land you know at much reduced prices you know to, to, to the public because we have rate rate, rate responsibilities to our ratepayers but that said you know with all those caveats um, you know it is really important for uh, the public sector to look hard at how to partner and in order to create the best possible open space there, you know, that that it can help to support. Um, uh, Five Acre Woods is, you know, outside Seattle. Um, Just as a little background, the utility owns this land um, and has uh, uh, held back from selling it for over a decade. Um, so that the citizens of Lake Forest Park could afford to buy it, you know, at market rate, uh, you know, and and turn it into a park. And um, I understand that the community is trying their very best to collect the funds. And we have deferred and deferred and deferred, and we continue to allow to create some kind of window um, for them. But ultimately, we do have responsibilities to our ratepayers. Um, thank you. <laughs> so this is a question
3: um, for everyone, and uh, it's uh, kind of a pushback on the whole notion of this panel itself, uh it's not as scary as I make it sound. Um, uh, this is a question actually that came to us uh, through the Facebook event page for this event. Um, Dante says, are people just not being resourceful Um, There are about 105 parks and open spaces listed on the Seattle Parks Department website and 167 on the King County Parks website. I don't really think that we're short on public spaces, even with an increasing population density. There are still plenty of resources within reach. So, comments, thoughts?
5: Well, let me just kick it off, and I'm sure you'll have local examples. There is an absolute revolution going on with respect to public space stewardship. Um, And so I think even you know, up until 10, 15 years ago, most of the conversation about the public realm was about building new parks, about creating more stock. And we are now in the middle of an incredibly creative wave of communities using public open space in so many different ways. And, you know, it's it's almost kind of like a um, uh, cliche now to see, you know, the promotional photograph of, people doing yoga in a park, right? That's, that's become like a cliche. But if you think about all of the festivals and the active programming that's occurring in public open spaces, I think we're just at the beginning of that. And it's really thinking about parks less as an end and more as a means. And you can think about that in terms of, you know, green infrastructure, but I think you can also think about that in terms of the culture of the city itself and so back to my liberal understanding of, um, of of the public realm. It's not a dirty word in exactly. Seattle. Exactly. Um, you know, parks are vehicles for people. And we're just beginning to figure out how to unlock that, I think.
3: Great. Um, so we have another question from the audience. Unless you wanted to please add. I,
6: I just wanted to piggyback on that a little bit. Um, I agree with Uva uh, entirely. Um, but, just to get back to the question about do we need more? I don't know the answer in every detail, but you know in lots of cities, uh, people ask that question, but it's not the quantity of, of parks that you have. It's where they are, it's who they serve. It's the way that they're designed in order to serve the people and their communities better so that they can act as true platforms of both environmental and cultural production. And so, you know, that's, uh, whether it's, so I think that that question of of whether you have enough is a bit reductive.
3: Um, Thank you. Thatcher, do you want to say
4: something? Oh, well, I I thank you both, and I'll just add one more thing, which is, What Sam and his department are doing is looking at the whole universe of publicly owned land and how that gets deployed, and I think that becomes a really interesting conversation when you're talking about, say, solving uh, a traffic problem that's going to emerge in downtown Seattle over the next three years like we've never seen before. And by focusing just on how do you get wheels from one end of town to the other, you're maybe missing out, again, on kind of how do you think about that as public realm that's available for a whole host of experiences. So again, discrete parks are great, but how do we have park-like social experiences um, throughout the city that are, are relevant to our lives? So I think um, this panel is a lot, about a lot more than just building some new parks. Um, so
3: park-like social ex- uh, experiences? Um, are sort of the topic of these. I'm gonna combine these two questions. If you recognize your question here, I'm gonna combine them. Um, How can we ensure that the development of public spaces are indeed accessible for everyone? Um, Differently abled, senior citizens, young children and families, and then this other audience member um, also wants to make sure that that's extended to people who are considered sometimes sketchy or undesirable. Um, How can we make sure that parks are for everybody?
4: It just has to be a core value. And you, you, um, there's a wonderful program I was reading about in Portland um, where there's, it's, I think the thing is called uh, New Parks for New Portlanders or something like that where they are specifically um, rejiggering uh, park design and uses to welcome immig- new immigrant communities moving into the city so that those parks are meeting the needs of the people who live around them. And I think um, that I'll go back to the Occidental Park example. There was a real concern because a bunch of private money is supporting this new programming. That this was just a park cleansing program, and it's really just going to be for the the well-paid employees of warehouse or whatnot. But in fact, nobody wants that. The, here's another secret about these public spaces: that people want to be together with everyone in these parks. So it was a principle from the get-go that the only people not welcome in in occidental square were people actively you know selling drugs or or selling you know prostitution everybody else is welcome and it's just a matter of making it feel good for everyone and if you go down there all sorts of people are there and in a city like seattle i don't think we have much to worry on that score we are committed to notions of inclusion I, I don't know what it's like in other cities but I think that that's what parks bring out in people um, you're not creating um, rarefied zones for only a certain economic class or a certain cultural class it just doesn't make it doesn't work that way for folks people celebrate our most diverse parks they want to be there everybody wants to be there
6: I, I think this question is a really important one um, it's increasingly important, maybe in other countries as well, where there's greater political instability. Um, the ability to uh, interact with people who are unlike you—you know—to really uh, be on equal terms in a public space is, in a sense, fundamental to democratic society. Right? It's your—it's one of your primary opportunities to really authentically engage with other perspectives than your own, and so uh, you know it's a big issue in some countries that, you know, that are worried about the impacts of exclusion. Um, And, and, and so, you know, this is a real area of focus for those countries. And I think that, you know, it, it should be in the United States as well more, you know, uh, 10 years ago, we weren't talking about equity and inclusion and open space quite as much. Um, There's a lot of good research. Uh, uh, Setha Lowe, who is a, you know, a, who's written a lot for a couple decades about that issue, I think has done a lot of good work, as well as uh, Melissa Curie. Um, So, uh, you know, I would encourage people, you know, to kind of look at the strategies that they advocate for, and some of the um, principles that they advocate for are accessibility, specificity, authenticity, affordability, and functionality. Right, and you know there are definitions behind them, but you know those you can kind of imagine what those mean, and it really does mean a lot about fitting to place and breaking down bar- cultural uh, per- cultural barriers um, that may promote people to feeling excluded.
5: I just want to weigh in as well and just say I, I actually think this is the question. This is the question that we really need to struggle struggle with in a very sober conscientious way. Uh, Inclusion doesn't just happen on its own. You know, you can't just put up a sign and say, this park is accessible to everyone, and and then go home and feel like you've done your job. Um, We have to make parks accessible. We have to welcome people into them. Uh, I think one of the exciting things about the way in which public um, parks are being programmed now is that it's not just a big cultural festival for one cultural group. It's thinking about food as a way in which it brings people together. Obviously, thinking about music and how music brings people together. And in Washington, the one example that I showed is actually thinking about commerce. How does commerce bring people together in the public realm? Uh, I think bringing people together in our cities is is much more difficult than we think it is.
6: Since it's the, the question, can I piggyback onto that Absolutely. too? Uh, it's not just the design, but it's, you know, the design itself, but it's the process to the design, right? It's how people are engaged in in, in figuring out how the park should function or where it should be. Um, you know, there are a lot of great uh, heroes of mine who have done work for decades on these issues. You know, Anne Spurn with the West Philadelphia Landscape Project, you know. She figured out ways to empower and educate people through really active participation, even paying community members so that there was, you know, you know, so that they were being compensated for their, uh, for for their time and participation, just like a consultant would be or an academic. Uh, you know, uh, I think that uh, Brett Brown in Dallas right, is doing some great work with BC Workshop and his, uh, the the urban design uh, cities urban design workshop that he's leading, where they're really working on inclusive. Uh, approaches for collaborative uh, uh, decision-making with community members. And you said, I'm going to ask a follow-up
3: question then. Absolutely. Um, you said you think people are thinking about
6: issues of inclusion
3: more in the past 10 years than they were before. Why do you think that is, and what have you noticed?
6: Why do we think that is?
3: Yeah, what have, what have you noticed that's different, and why do you think there's a difference now? Why do you think people are thinking about it more?
6: Do you want Go to start? Ahead.
4: Well, I just think the evolution of the urban scene in the, in the country has been such that um, the separation between classes and cultures has grown more acute and it's just more in everybody's face. And we recognize that our public spaces are maybe the antidote or the potential antidote for addressing those kinds of concerns. And I, I would really go back to this. Um, there's so much to be learned from the communities who care the most about the public spaces that affect them and their families. And if you want to learn how to create or how to help create or support the creation of truly, meaningfully, inclusive spaces, listen carefully um, to the people that you say that you want to make feel welcome and invest in their capacity to achieve these ends. And I think the real struggle for a lot of public agencies that have these, this huge mandate kind of for inclusive, inclusiveness in the abstract is to kind of be able to operate at that level of specificity around um, site A, B or C and the, and the various needs that emerge around that. But I, I think that is, that is the project and that's the only way we're going to get it right. We're never going to figure it out from above and, and impose inclusive outcomes.
3: Um, So how do we reconcile this thing that we're talking about right which is that it's very important that public spaces be inclusive We want them to be places for everybody even sketchy and undesirable people everybody sort of comes together in these parks Combined with this other thing that we're talking about right which is that we need to leverage private investment um, To create public spaces and I would assume you guys know more than I do But I would assume that people who make private investments have some sort of investment in the kind of people or the kind of activities that happen in these spaces
4: no. no, I don't. I don't. I back to the value proposition You, you you know, that's actually, I think, a, a, a not always a false assumption, but I think more often than not, it is a false assumption that you can tell the story of the value that's that's generated by having these super successful spaces that are welcoming to all people and that value accrues to the bottom lines of the people whose buildings are nearby or it accrues to the, you know, the social cohesion of the community or the city itself. So I don't, um, and if there are donors who are sort of saying we want to make a park that doesn't allow X, Y, and Z to happen, they're not part of the conversation. I think it's, a, it's more of a false question.
6: It's also an older way of looking at philanthropic contributions to open space investments. Um, that might have happened, maybe in the generation that Pershing Square or Post Office Square were developed, you know, where there were you know very strong corporate interests um, with the land ad- in the land adjacent to those to new development. Um, but uh, I, I just I, I don't think that is part as much part of the conversation these days because people have a, a broader understanding of, of of that there are lots of pots of money required and no one. Uh, interest can prevail, or shouldn't prevail.
3: Um, I want to do one more call out in case there's anybody out there that has a question that they've been thinking of that they haven't asked. We're still welcome. This um, fellow over here. Um, I also just sort of want to transition to like nice ideas. How do we make it real? Um, what would you like to see from? People in the audience, people in the city, um, what, can, what can people who want this to happen do?
5: So I, I just want to also explicitly recognize a major trend that's occurring, uh, I know here in Seattle and, and, and in so many other cities, and that is the incredible rise of the nonprofit sector. Um, we have so many friends of fill-in-the-blank groups now uh, some, we were joking before, some focused on one traffic island <laughs> uh, and others of course focused on broader missions uh, related to the public realm. I think that there's a lot of social innovation occurring within the nonprofit sector and from my experience in the public sector, you know, so much of what we wanted to do was only effectuated by the nonprofit sector. So whether that's special cleanups or youth engagement or, um, you know, uh, stewardship of wildlife, you know, there's so many things that only come alive when the nonprofit sector kind of jumps in and makes it happen. And I just wanted to kind of recognize that as a major trend.
6: So the, I just want to make clear, the question is what would we, what, what, if you could say
3: one thing to every person in this audience about what they can do to help, if, if they like these ideas, and they want them to be real in the world,
6: what can any one person do? Speak up. Speak up and find ways to facilitate other people's uh, uh, voices to be heard, right? You know, that's uh, trying to find the right ways to you know, I mean, this is an extraordinary audience, right? People on a beautiful evening, they're here sitting in a dark auditorium, you know, uh, talking about the assets that they should just be enjoying in real time, right? You know, and... Uh, but not everybody is so um, altruistic uh, or has the luxury of doing this. And so, you know, trying to figure... it It's a challenge to try as, as a public space manager to try to figure out, you know, how to access the voices and the energy of people in a way that's really meaningful. Um, so uh, speaking up and helping other people to do so is important.
3: Um, are there any immediate opportunities that you feel like, ugh, we should just take advantage of this one?
5: I, I think, maybe piggybacking on what um, was just said, I, I, I think the, the fun of it, and the challenge of it is to really use this conversation to make new connections across communities. I think that's really what's exciting about this conversation, and um, and those are th- those are networks and connections that you know happen at so many different scales. So here tonight we're kind of having this conversation at a larger civic scale, but. I really do find those conversations at the most localized scale incredibly interesting. You know, we come into contact with one another, we meet new people, we draw um, relationships between different organizations. That's that's the work of building strong communities. There's a lot of literature emerging now around that as a key strength of urban resilience, uh, and so we're kind of all in it already it's just a matter of of how motivated we are and how, how activated we are
6: i think that's a brilliant response you know our understanding of how networks can how to grow networks and how to leverage the power of networks is is pretty incipient still you know there's a lot of uh, uh, of initial theory about how that works but it would be incredible you know if if, if Seattle could really lead out on that to show how not just to reach this special audience but all the people who live in neighborhoods and connect them to what to each other so that we understand mutually you know our our needs and in, in, in terms of investing in the public realm
4: and I'll just circle right back to Sam and what his office uh, is doing around this issue which is literally um, Mapping out the connections between all the publicly owned property, the public realm that we all have access to, that we're all making decisions about, and and recognizing that that's a changed way of thinking about our parks and public spaces. It's a connected way, um, and that um, the more frictionless that can be, the better. So my urging is, whenever any of us encounter a situation that feels like wait that thing's not happening right or wait we should make sure this is preserved in this way or if whenever we find ourselves slipping back into ways of thinking about our public spaces that maybe are just a little retrograde or maybe not quite um reflective of the moment we're living in take a breath and recognize wait we're all connected now in all sorts of ways and whenever you're in a conversation about transportation Speak up about public space. Whenever you're in a conversation about affordable housing, housing, speak up about public space. Um, we are we're still not putting that all together. Um, we were talking earlier before about a, a couple of developments, one not in Seattle and one in Seattle. And I use the example of Yesler Terrace, which is going to which is a major um, development for housing, um, subsidized and. Uh, commercial use and would be one of the densest neighborhoods in the city the public space aspect of that is is really good But it wasn't there. It didn't start from a public public realm perspective it started from how do you address a whole set of housing needs for uh, the population in the city? we need to think a little bit more holistically about um all the opportunities we have in in Seattle to get it right. And we need to kind of let go of whatever feels residual um, and work with Sam and his folks on coming up with that work being the driver of of livability for everyone in this city and all of its nuance and all of its possibility.
3: I feel like that's a great place to to leave it. Um, I mean, a lot of the things that we've talked about here, about speak up... You know, there's new ideas. Uh, Talk to people and be heard. You can do all of those things right here, right now, tonight. Um, These people are here. I know a lot of you had questions, very specific questions, especially for the city that we didn't get a chance to talk to. Um, Sam is here. And all of these folks are here, you can ask your questions directly if you'd like to. Um, For now, I just want to thank you so much for coming, for giving us a little bit of your evening, for thinking about open space. Please keep thinking about open space and um, join the conversation on Outside Citywide. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This How Can Seattle Grow More Public Space event took place at the Seattle Public Library's Central Library on July 24th. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.